0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Kath McAloon. Welcome to Country Breakfast. Parts of Europe, the USA, Canada and East Asia have sweltered through a summer marked by intense heat waves. This morning on the show, we'll take a detailed look at one of the biggest... In China.
2: The party state is on high alert. This is the biggest drought reportedly that China has had since 1961, and that was from the Great Leap Forward, where tens of millions of people starved to death.
1: That's coming up a little later, but first this morning, it's time to check in and find out what's been making news in the world of rural. And to do that, we're joined by Serena Locke. Good morning, Serena. Hi there, Kev. Now, Serena, it will come as no surprise to anyone who does the family grocery shop that it has just got more and more expensive this year. And now it seems that consumers are looking for cheaper options when they go to the shops.
3: Yeah, and they do exist. So consumers are turning to frozen and canned vegetables because we've seen the bad weather input costs and COVID disruptions really push up the price of food. CEO of Ritchie's IGA, Fred Harrison, says he's never seen the cost of fresh food across fruit and vegetables of all types remain so high for so long. Now, he says sales of fresh beans are down 60 to 80 percent. And the issues that Australia is facing with weather, cost inflation and a shortage of workers, he believes these high prices might last for longer than normal.
4: There's always been times where there might be two or three different products that have been impacted because of either fires or floods, but it's not two or three products. We're now seeing most produce items impacted one way or another. So this is the first time we've seen produce prices so widespread as far as uh, impacted with increased costs and therefore retails to consumers. So I would say in the 47 years I've been in the industry, this is the worst I've seen uh, Fruit and veg generally.
1: That's probably not the news that consumers were hoping for. They're heading overseas now and a little later in the program, we're going to be talking about a massive heat wave in China and the impact that that's having on agriculture there. But farmers in the UK have also limped through one of the hottest summers on record there. How have they endured it? Yes,
3: so 10 areas of England, parts of Wales as well, are officially in drought and temperatures broke records of over 40 degrees at times. Now, in fact, some of the heat has produced excellent grain crops. I suppose like a dry ripening you might get in Australia, Although irrigation dams are empty and so is the table of water, the water table, and the vegetable crops are wilting. Now, Andrew Brown is a grain grower at Rutland to the north of London. He says he has clay soils, which have retained the moisture. So he was lucky with his grain crops.
5: I mean, the yields for for our crops this year have been the best I've ever had. I've had uh, average 10.7 tonnes a hectare on wheat, which is uh, is the most I've ever had. Anyone who's got sandy soils, as they are further east from here, will have suffered uh, quite badly. And anyone who um, planted spring crops, they suffered really badly as well.
1: And from the UK to China, we'll be hearing more about how the heatwave there has affected agricultural production to a legal issue now. And oil and gas giant Santos is being taken to court. They've been accused of misleading investors with some of their claims around clean energy.
3: Yes, beware the shareholders you displease, because this is the shareholder activist group, the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility. It has shares in Santos. Now, it is taking what it says is the first case in the world, challenging the veracity of the company's net zero emissions target. In fact, ASIC as well is investigating several companies over potential called greenwashing. Santos has pledged to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2040. So it has a $220 million carbon capture and storage project at Moomba in South Australia's far north and potentially another carbon capture project off the NT coast. Now, Executive Director of the Centre for Corporate Responsibility, Bren O'Brien, says Santos will not be the only one to have its claims about carbon emissions challenged.
6: But I do imagine that... Plenty of corporate executives, plenty of legal
3: advisors and plenty of board directors are watching this case uh, with a great deal of interest and looking at their own statements, I guess, with a heightened um, sense of of, of awareness of the potential legal
7: consequences of misleading the public.
3: And Santos didn't respond to ABC Rural's request for comment on this one, but uh, the case is expected to go before a judge in the first half of next year.
1: And talking about climate action, Australia's Clean Energy Finance Corporation has made a Big investment, $75 million into a pastoral company to help it reduce its emissions. Yes, yeah, so this is
3: the sheep and cattle giant Paraway Pastoral. It's received $75 million investment from the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Parraway operates 28 properties throughout Australia and it totals more than 4.5 million hectares around the country with a capacity to run... Wait for it, 220,000 cattle and 250,000 sheep. This is a big company. Now, under the deal, Paraway has committed to reduce methane intensity by at least 30% by 2030. Really, that isn't very far away. So Rory Lonergan is the executive director at the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. He says agriculture will play a big part in Australia reaching the target of net zero by 2050.
8: It's a whole range of initiatives, around farm operations, genetics, herd management. Methane inhibitors will be a key part of that. Paraway, they have committed you know, to be very transparent with the industry so that the you know, typical farmer gets access to the thinking uh, that's going on inside their business in terms of how they're going to tackle this challenge and how they're going to deliver, hopefully, a net zero outcome.
1: And reducing emissions is a challenge that so many parts of the agriculture industry are facing. And old trucks came under the microscope this week with um, some concern that um, emissions from old trucks are highly polluting and bad for our health. Yes, and more than
3: a quarter of Australia's trucks are more than 25 years old and they're pumping out these nasty particulates. These are those with a diameter of 2.5 micrometres or less, known as the PM2.5, and they're a major health risk. So the Grattan Institute has done a report and found that exhaust pipe pollutants kill more than 400 Australians every year. So it contributes to cancers, diabetes, stroke and heart disease. Report author Marion Terrell says, we've not kept up with global pollution standards. And she says at the very least, these old trucks should be banned from densely populated areas.
9: Trucks sold before 1996 emits about 60 times as much particulate matter as a truck sold today and about eight times as much of the nitrogen oxides. Being around these old trucks is very poisonous
5: for people. So we've recommended that the solution is to keep dirty old trucks away
9: from densely populated areas, such as the kind of capital cities.
1: Have farmers responded? Because I imagine, um, you know, when they're wanting to bring their... Produce to market, there's not really a way to get there without taking these older trucks into town. So it could yeah, be... Yeah, well, the Victorian Country Hours um, phone line ran
3: hot with farmers and truck owners saying they couldn't keep up, um, you know, their business if they had to change over to new trucks. You know, they may be old, but they are still workhorses. And, yet they still rely on transporting, uh, you know, livestock or food and groceries around the country and often with old trucks.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one. Now, labour and the availability of finding workers has been such a big and uh, ongoing issue for the agriculture industry. Um, There's been an interesting call this week from a pensioner who wants the government to let them keep more of their pension if they do take up work on farms. Is, Is this kind of a new idea? No, of course it's not a new idea but it's, um, it's one that the
3: 73-year-old fruit picker Wendy McLennan from Bridport in Tasmania endorses and she picks fruit every year in Tasmania and this year she'll even take her grandkids along for the hard work and she says blueberries are just nice and light for her to pick. Um, it's It's quite an enjoyable occupation actually <laughs> and I also take my grandchildren along with me and they earn themselves a lot of money to get themselves through university and that sort of thing. So, you know, it works really well. I mean, I think they're contributing to the workforce. So I I think there should be a bit of an ease
1: up on whether they're going to have their pension affected by what they earn. Yeah, really interesting. And speaking of finding workers, disability advocates say that businesses are missing out on a big source of workers, especially for ag work.
3: Yeah, this was a really interesting story this week um, because... You know, in a time to coincide with the um, Jobs and Skills Summit, unemployment is the lowest it's been in Australia for around 50 years. It sits at around 3.4%. Uh, but for those with a disability, the unemployment rate is around 10%. And we know farmers are crying out for help and they may be overlooking some willing workers. Federal Disabilities Minister Amanda Rishworth held a roundtable on the disability workforce ahead of the National Jobs and Skills Summit in Canberra this week. And Daniel Stewart is one of those. Now, he got his degree in forensic science from university, but he couldn't get work in his field. Look, in part because he has Asperger's, Um, but he got a break at a flower farm at Mullaney and he's right at home there.
0: The work I do here is not unrelated to forensic science.
10: How is that?
0: because I'm pulling all the criminal weeds out from the the plants and I'm also patrolling all the criminal thistles like a policeman.
1: I love it. It's such a good story. (laughs) It's great. I love his attitude. (laughs) You
3: can read more about his story um, and the flower farm employing people with a disability. So you can go
1: online at ABCRN Country Breakfast homepage and it'll be there. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Serena. Yeah, good to talk to you, Kath. You too.
0: We all do it. It's one of the basic skills we learn as kids that colour and shape our world. But it's not all rainbows, stick figures and beaming suns. Drawing is also a life skill. And on The Art Show, I want you to join me and the artist Lily Mae Martin as we try to recover the lost art, including tricks and hacks like how to master illusion and capture perspective. The Drawing Board on The Art Show with me, Daniel Browning, Wednesday morning at 10 or anytime on the ABC Listen app.
1: This week, we'll meet the growers who are getting their pomegranates directly to customers. They've opened a cafe on their farm where they're serving up the fruit seeds and juice in a range of dishes. We'll find out why a family of beef farmers has added a side business, growing fancy edible fungi. And we'll hear how keeping up a busy life on the family cattle station is helping 79-year-old Olive live life to the fullest with a dementia diagnosis. She couldn't imagine living anywhere else. I just love the country life. I just like to see
11: the animals, the plants, the trees, and it's freedom. You can do whatever you sort of want to do. I just love the land. I've never lived anywhere else but on the land, so as long as I've got um, horses and cattle and
1: animals around me, I'll be happy. Olive's secrets to a happy life, that's coming up. First today, we're heading to the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales. When floods struck the region in February, among the many items destroyed were hundreds of musical instruments. Now the region's musicians have been gifted replacements and a local composer and multi-instrumentalist Tilly Jones has written an orchestral piece that captures the heartbreak, heroism and hope of the disaster in a moving soundscape. She plans to bring together local musicians for a performance. Our reporter Leah White compiled this story that starts with Anita Bellman of the Northern Rivers Conservatorium.
12: We probably lost in total, you know, well over 150 instruments. Clarinets, cellos, guitars, trumpets, saxophones. Any
13: instrument you can think of, we lost. I'm Tilly Jones and I'm a composer and multi-instrumentalist. The start of a piece is a bit of a calm before the storm. That progresses into real bulk of the piece with the timpani doing a low rumble. We've got the xylophone doing a dissonant trill to emulate the sirens in the alarms. And I guess a real fear that was going on at the time. I think it's a really big challenge to translate something of that magnitude into music. I kind of used the piece as half a bit of a retelling, in a way, of the pods. Then the other half, a bit of a tribute to everyone involved. I used the different instruments of the orchestra, which is very large, to create a bit of a landscape to retell that story. Based
12: on the predictions that were coming out at the time, we felt that moving everything to the first floor, we'd done a good job of preparing for what was to come. I'm Anita Bellman. I'm the executive director of the Northern Rivers Conservatorium in Lismore. So I realized that things wouldn't be okay when I woke up on Monday morning. It had come up halfway up the windows on the first floor of the building. Where, where I'm sitting at the moment is the admin offices and it, it just, I mean, it looked like a Giant had picked the building up and just given it a bit of a shake, and things were just you know so topsy turvy, and you know everything was upended.
13: I don't think I'll fully ever be able to process it. I was helping there on the first day after the flood, where we threw out hundreds and hundreds of instruments, including some of my own. So kind of having that end goal in mind of bringing everyone together with the new instruments and I guess bringing music back to the community kind of helped me in dealing with it. After the
14: flood I was so disappointed when I realised that my mating guitar was covered in mud and water and broken. My name's Stella Ratmund and I'm a recipient of um, a guitar through the ReSound program. The three things was my cat and my dog and my guitar that I was hoping to rescue from the flood. So I've got the cat and the dog, and but not the guitar. I felt guilty that I hadn't rescued it, but I didn't realize the flood would be so huge and it wasn't supposed to come into the house.
6: The black one wasn't there as well. ReSound is a music instrument drive. What we do is we take donated instruments and we redistribute them to people who have lost instruments in natural disasters. Rachel Hocking, I'm the manager and founder of ReSound. I oh, thank you. Oh, that's OK. And hug. <laughs> OK. Oh, take care. It's a big deal for people who have lost a lot Often replacing a musical instrument is one of the last things on the list to be replaced because the immediate needs need to be met. There you go.
15: Thank you so much. Oh,
6: that's okay. But for musicians who earn income from it or who um, play it every day, it's a big loss. It's, it's, It's something normal that they were doing that they've lost.
12: I can remember thinking in the first week about the loss, the loss not just of our musical instruments, but how much loss there would have been right across the community. So ReSound has, I think that they're up to, you know, over 200 instruments throughout the community and the conservatorium has received donations of well over 200 instruments as well.
14: To receive the guitar from ReSound, I was just stunned. I thought wow this is beautiful, it's a lovely guitar and just to have this gift was just fabulous. Having the music there and the guitar, it's been like light coming on, you know like a Christmas lights or something. I turn them on, get the guitar out, the lights come on then when I'm finished then the lights go off.
13: It really does mean so much to me to have my friends, my family and my colleagues at the Conservatory and play it and also even people I don't know through ReSound um, to be playing this piece. I'm really excited to hear it and see what comes from it. For me I think some of the greatest pieces of music have come out of really traumatic and tragic events. So. I think music really has the power to help people process trauma and go through a healing process.
11: I'm involved in all, everything that I love doing. I still go over the cattle yards when they're doing work. I can open shut gates, I can run for something if they want want something, if somebody gets hurt I go and get the first aid if
16: we haven't got on board Although she just turned 79, Olive Ether still lives a busy life on her family property near Baralaba in central Queensland, about an hour and a half west of Rockhampton
11: I'm still involved in, in work Olive also lives
16: with dementia Her daughter Lynn first noticed symptoms about six years ago.
7: We were playing a card game once and then mum was like, I I don't know how to play this game. I don't know how to play... And and I was like, mum, you're a champion at cards. And so just a change in ability to do something for one moment and then the next day it was was fine again. Mum was a, a, a bit emotional at times and she was always, you know, the steady rock and then she just felt... There were some highs and lows, and there were some tears sometimes, and I was like having a double take. So, yeah,
16: and maybe a little bit of paranoia. Hi, I'm Michelle Gately. I'm here chatting with Olive and Lynn on the family farm, which is not only a working cattle property but also a farm stay operation, hosting tourists for rural experiences. The pair are recounting the tense time the family experienced before Olive received her dementia diagnosis.
7: It was a very unsettling, uneasy time. That's definitely the case, and you don't want to go accusing anybody, and you don't want to. When you start the conversation, then it brings up more emotion. You're damned if you do, and if, you're damned if you don't.
11: Well, I, I was a bit disappointed in different times because she used to say to me, "Oh, you haven't done that," or "You, you don't, you know, you should be doing this" or something, and I didn't know that I wasn't wasn't doing the right thing or saying the right thing or doing the right thing. Yeah it was... uh,
16: Some confusion. Yeah, yeah.
11: But I was lucky. I was diagnosed early enough and I didn't have the trauma that a lot of other people
7: would have went through. You're a good stick mum and it was tough for a while there
16: wasn't it? Yeah. The family did eventually talk to Olive but Lynn says by the time they did see a doctor and waited for a specialist appointment it was two years on from those first symptoms. Luckily though it was early enough for medication to effectively stabilise most of Olive's symptoms which means she's been able to live a relatively normal life on the farm something she believes is only helping her dementia.
11: Well the point is actually I can do a lot of help for them and I enjoy doing it and that helps me with the dementia, because I don't sit... If I if I retired, <clears throat> I would sit in, in the house and do nothing,
16: where I'm still very busy with my life. Olive's daily routine has been mostly unchanged since diagnosis. Every day starts with a three-kilometre walk down the property's dirt road drive and onto the highway. She wears a safety vest, but rarely sees a passing car this far out of town. After breakfast, there's work to do on the day. Although the family is closed for holiday bookings, they still host plenty of workers in the region. There's all the linen to do. I love doing the linen. I love ironing the pillowcases, doing the washing,
11: uh, making beds. The only thing I don't like doing is... Um,
16: Cleaning um, showers because they're too far down to the floor. As the farm stay expanded over the years, the family made accessible upgrades that will also make it possible for Olive to stay at home even if her mobility decreases. They may live in the bush, but Lynn says she's been blown away by the amount of care and support services available. And those carers are on board with Olive's plan to raise money for Dementia Australia through a public walk in Borrella Bar this month. So
7: she has access to a podiatrist. So we say mum's in training and he helped to get the right shoes. Um, One of the aged care support workers does massage. So we get mum to have a massage because she's in training and she's an athlete. And um, they do fun stuff together and um, there's a nurse that comes and takes her blood pressure. So yeah, those services are out there and those services are also helping
16: make me feel supported. Both mother and daughter believe there's no better place for Olive to be than at home.
11: Well, I, I feel that at this stage I don't have dementia because I can do whatever I want to do. I'm still capable of doing all the things that I want to do. So I feel if I can keep going the way I am, the life will be
16: no different. What is it you love about being out here? Why do you never want to leave?
11: Well, the point is actually I've never lived in, in, in a town and I just love the country life. I just like to see the animals, the plants, the trees and um, it's freedom. You can do whatever you sort of want to do. I just love the land. I've never lived anywhere else but on the land, so as long as I've got um, horses and
1: cattle and animals around me, I'll be happy. Olive Ether, along with her daughter Lynn, she spoke to reporter Michelle Gately about how they've navigated Olive's dementia diagnosis and how she's benefiting from being at home on the family cattle station. Before that, Leah White brought us that beautiful piece about an orchestral composition that was written in response to the devastating floods in the Lismore region of northern New South Wales. And you can see more on both those stories. Just head online to the RN homepage and look for country breakfast. I'm Cath McAloon with you on RN, still to come. The Farm Cafe with a view of rows and rows of pomegranate trees. And from meat to mushrooms, we'll meet the cattle farmers who are adding fungi to the locally grown produce they're taking to market.
6: So what happens is the bags come in here and they start growing, they look like this.
10: Inside this converted shipping container, Susie Usher is growing fancy edible mushrooms. This
6: is shimeji, blue shimeji. Down here is Queensland white, and then around the corner is yellow shimeji, lion's mane. Oh wow, look at your lion's mane. Yeah, isn't it beautiful? This will get little hairs that go down, um, so it's not quite ready for me to pick yet. They really are beautiful, aren't they? These are very fancy mushrooms. Gourmet. Yeah, gourmet. (laughs) That's right.
10: Hello, I'm Jennifer Nichols. I'm standing with Susie in this dark room on the family property at Kinkin in the Noosa hinterland on Queensland's Sunshine Coast. Outside, the lush green hills here are home to a small herd of beef cattle. The colourful mushrooms serve as a complementary side business to Susie and her husband Bryant's beef enterprise. And while they look great now, just ahead of picking, Susie says when they first start growing they're not quite so impressive.
6: When they first start they look a little bit like mould and then so it starts like that, the next day it'll look like that. They grow really, really quickly. In five days, see I've already picked, you'll get something like that. It's terrific, isn't it? Mm. And so we're
10: in this container, it's air-conditioned. What temperature have you got it at? 24 to
5: 25 degrees, approximately. Technical Uh,
17: stuff I don't get too bogged (laughs) down with.
10: (laughs) Just outside, Brian Usher has been exercising his farming ingenuity. It's an old milk fat.
5: Old milk bat converted to being a steamer or a steriliser for our um, mushroom substrate.
10: It looks like it's landed like a UFO. <laughs>
5: <laughs> it does a little. Uh, it is a home-built, you know, so <laughs> they get to have certain interesting looks about them. So we just use a normal um, urn that you might get at the CWA and turn it up full bore so it's just boiling the whole time and putting steam into the vat. And so we've got our substrate, which is now wood, so we, we do a mix with wood and uh, soy hull and uh, then we just bag it put it in there which effectively cleans out any other
10: bugs and fungi and stuff from there. If we're talking about substrate and you've never heard of it before it's what the mushrooms grow in? That's correct, yes. And why did you want to get into
6: mushrooms, Susie Usher? Initially my desire was to do medicinal mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, but there's so much red tape with it currently so we thought righto we'll set it up will grow eating mushrooms we are now growing lion's mane which you'll see in the next room and that is a medicinal mushroom so I'm pretty excited about that and then because we sell beef I really wanted to find an alternative for those people that don't eat beef so mushrooms i don't know mushrooms is i just fascinate they're me so, so. yeah they're exciting <laughs> mushrooms they're, they're are, delicious they too delicious they're, they're, they're really yummy and this goes back onto the paddock we make a compost and goes back onto the paddock. So everything's cyclic so that's really p- important to us would you
10: like to describe this room for people who are listening
6: uh it's a 20-foot container we've got shelves and we have shelves of different degrees of where the process is for the mushroom these ones, they're ready to go out. Those bags are ready because they've got all the white all the way through them. So those bags could go into the next room ready for fruiting. These ones, these are got a little bit of white, a little bit of br- um, wood, so
10: they're not ready. Wow, well, you must have had a very steep learning curve with this because I understand from talking to other mushroom growers that there is a lot to it. It's not necessarily... Yeah easy
6: no it's an interesting industry because we're regenerative farmers we're used to helping each other in the beef industry (laughs) and that doesn't happen much in the mushroom industry everybody wants to hide their secrets um we have a our other business partner alex our son He's probably the mycologist behind a lot of the technology and how much water to add and what to add to the wood bag. So he does all that research. He, behind you, you'll see a lab in there, and that's where he does all his mycology. <laughs> we here? We're, in the, so we're lab. in the lab. So the lab has a filtered flow form, so that the
5: air coming out of that little unit there is, is clean of any bugs and stuff, so he can do the mycology work in front of that. You'll see some petri dishes there, he's actually culturing the spore. So we've got our own grain spore as we go forward. Because that's probably our biggest import is the grain spore at the moment, to buy it in. And it comes from Melbourne, of all places, so it's got to come a long way.
7: Thank you.
10: Their son and fellow fungi fancier is busy cooking up innovative ideas. I left the laboratory and caught up with Alex Thompson Welsh at Eastwell Farm's stall at the Noosa Farmers Market.
15: So in the past couple of weeks we've had uh, the grow kits added to our range. We've got the pink, white, yellow, blue shimeji, and the lion's mane and then we've also got some dried lion's mane now. The grow kits are going like hotcakes. People love them because it's just so easy, you know. Everything's done for you in the box. You just take it home and rip open the window and voila, you're away.
17: At this unique cafe in Western Australia's great southern region, you can eat the red crunchy seeds of pomegranate fruit in a range of dishes while gazing upon rows and rows of pomegranate trees.
9: I'd have to say that we're the first pomegranate farm in Australia to have a cafe on the farm where we grow the trees. And uh, it's a bit hard to be a first these days, so it's lovely to be able to provide that. That's Deb Walker, who along with partner Robert Sutton are the
17: co-owners of Pomegranate Hill Cafe, on a farm about 40 kilometres north of Albany in southern WA. They've been growing pomegranates here since 2017 and have opened a cafe this year as a way of promoting their fruit directly to customers.
8: It was our dream probably three years ago to actually have a what we called a pomegranate shack on the property so we didn't have to go into the markets and if people are out this way they can actually call in and um, sample the fruit and uh, this was an extension to see what you could do with the fruit and actually try the, the pomegranate in cooking and and the juicing and and that sort of product.
17: Hello, I'm Sophie Johnson. I'm visiting Deb and Robert here on the farm, where their cafe is doing roaring trade since it opened just a few weeks ago. Robert says the ultimate goal is to sell all their fruit directly through the farm.
8: Being a townie all my life, I never thought I'd be in this situation, but um, I'd be uh, quite happy if I didn't go to town again. So if we can sell our product on the farm, um, it just makes life so much easier and more fulfilling.
9: Plus, we also wanted to cut out the the middleman because we the whole idea of us p- growing pomegranates was to provide the fresh, original fruit at a reasonable cost because of its uh, high antioxidants and its. Um, benefits health benefits that we wanted people to be able to access them
17: and pomegranates it's a bit of a niche market can you tell me a little bit about how that's been for you
8: it's about educating the people generally they think the pomegranates you put them on your salads but there's so much more you can do you know we're looking at actually fresh freezing or having a uh, antioxidant friendly way of pasteurizing so we can actually sell the juice
17: and how important is it to you that more people Get a bit more versatile with their pomegranate consumption.
8: Well, I think it's very important because this, when, when you go to Central Asia, Turkey, and Jordan, and these places, that it's it, that's, that's used every day in their food, and and the health benefits are, are magnificent. And there is a backstory to why we're doing it.
17: Would you mind sharing that
9: backstory? <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose That's I'm. Your res- fault. <laughs> yeah, it's my <laughs> fault. I'm responsible. Um, in 2013, I had a, a breast cancer diagnosis of HER2 positive, which uh, included having chemotherapy, radiation, lumpectomy, and. Uh, while I was doing all of that, my niece came over and she visited us and she said, you, uh, you must get these in your diet, Deb. And I didn't know anything, neither of us knew anything about pomegranates at that stage. So while I was going through my treatment, I think it gave Robbie some sense of comfort and his way of caring for me was to research the qualities and the the antioxidants. And the more he researched, the more it it got his curiosity. So we planted a few testers and they grew. And then he said, shall we we get a couple of hundred? (laughs) And now we're up to nearly 5,000. Definitely after my treatment and I was feeling healthier, I started to take the pomegranate juice and we just regularly take it now and to be able to help others in that same situation to access the purest form of pomegranate juice so that you're getting all those antioxidants, the research that's been done on it. And we only refer to scientifically proven research because we've all we're all over the superfood trends and things like that so and there's some great papers written out there that's been scientifically proven and tested about the healing qualities of pomegranates so yeah I suppose it is I said I took a hit for the team (laughs) but here we are eight years later and I'm in remission and thoroughly uh, fills my heart to see what Robbie and I have created and Yeah, it's been a really uh, fun, tumultuous, but now fulfilling journey. So this is a real dream come true for you guys. Yeah, it's been, and it's not really till you repeat it to someone else, like hearing our own words, that we can sit here now and look at it and gosh, yeah, yeah
1: co-owners of Pomegranate Hill, Deb Walker and Robert Sutton. They were speaking to Sophie Johnson about their new cafe in southern Western Australia. For more on that and all the stories on today's program, you can just head online to the RN homepage where you'll find Country Breakfast.
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Naz. Hi, Naz. Uh, Last month, I spent $65 on subscription
18: services and I only watched one show. My
0: own. This season of The Pineapple Project, we're getting even more frugal. So let's tweak our streaming subscriptions, budget out our beauty regimens, date without
18: debt, and heaps more. The new season of The Pineapple Project podcast. Hear it now on the ABC Listen app.
1: Heading overseas now and large swathes of China have sweltered through a massive 70-day heat wave which set records for its reach and intensity. The long hot spells saw factories shut down and rivers run dry as well as having a significant impact on important crops like rice. Clint Jasper spoke with University of Queensland Associate Professor Scott Waldron about its impact on agricultural production.
2: So the area affected by the drought and the heat wave covers a vast area um, from underneath the Tibetan Plateau in the west, from Sichuan, Chongqing, and then follows the Yangtze River about 1,500 kilometres to the east, so through provinces like Hubei, Hunan, Jiangxi, Anhui, and indeed some reports you know, that the drought has affected some parts of Jiangsu in the east. So it, it, it forms... A band I guess through the middle of China and it's not as wet as South China and it's not as dry as North China it's somewhere in the middle roughly a thousand millimetres of rain per year give or take we give or take quite a lot because of the diversity of the area
15: is it an important food producing region for China
2: very important because it's such a large area it's diverse so it produces a lot of different agricultural products including You know, in that between a third of all China's rice and if it extends to the east, up to a half of China's rice. And importantly, most of China's rice, about 75%, is harvested in the Northern Hemisphere autumn, which we're coming into now. So that's directly affected by this drought uh, that we're uh, experiencing at the moment. So it's going to have a huge effect on rice, Um, potentially on other grain crops. Soybean is the main one, uh, but also a range of other horticultural crops and and livestock. And how is
15: the Chinese government responding to this? I think they they said the heat wave had gone for some 70 days.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, Yeah, I mean, that heat wave for about 70 days, the drought since the beginning of July, so that's an extended period and um so alarm bells are ringing and china's taking immediate sort of emergency relief measures and there's a few parts to those one is water management so the management of water reserves um, pumping allocation of water to irrigation including for agriculture and the other part is agronomic so so allocating the water at key growth periods for the for the crops um, some water retention technologies managing pests and disease that arise from droughts so taking those sort of measures but there's going to be losses and in which case then there's crop loss management including the utilization of the stubble the residues from the crops for livestock or, or to work back into the into the paddocks.
15: Do we have a clear idea at this stage how the drought or the, the heat wave most recently has actually impacted
2: production? Um, we don't know exactly because harvest hasn't started yet, but um, all the images and the, and the ground trials suggest there's going to be heavy losses um, for rice and soybean, and they're going to be mediated by the sort of measures that we just talked about from the state, but there'll still be losses. and there's several reports that suggest that there'll be heavier losses for other products. So that are non-irrigated and not grains that are prioritized by the state. So that means horticulture, fruit and vegetables, peanuts that's used to produce peanut oil, potentially meat and eggs if, if um, the drought leads to a shortage of feed. Or if um, heat stress affects productivity and mortalities in you know, pigs, chickens, cattle, so the the losses are potentially high. But we'll find out over the over the next weeks and months.
15: Does it raise any strategic concerns for China's leaders?
2: Definitely. Yep. The um, party state is on high alert. This is the biggest drought reportedly that China has had since 1961, and. That was from the great leap forward, where tens of people, tens of millions of people starved to death. And uh, clearly that's not going to happen this time, but certainly the party and the state would be sensitized to perceptions of how well it can handle the crisis. And also to um, just general dissatisfaction, um, including from food price inflation. And they'll be especially sensitized at the moment because, you know, of lockdowns and controversial covid policy and also in the lead up to the 20th national congress so it's an important period in china's modern history really and uh, you know the large part of the population you know will be will be watching it closely in china and the the leadership will be aware of that
15: everyone around the world is paying a lot more for food this year than they were even last year have you read anything or, or seen any reports about what's going on with food inflation in China, and whether it's something consumers there are, are feeling as well?
2: Food price inflation is the international problem at the moment, as we know, for a whole range of reasons because of input prices, um, and then that was ex- exacerbated by the war in Ukraine and Russia, and um, and COVID. So food prices have been going through the roof in China and as we know that's a serious and sensitive issue so if this weather induced event sort of puts further pressure on food prices then uh, then that's significant for China and potentially you know internationally China's the biggest consumer of rice and a number of other grains and meats so this could have flow on effects internationally too
15: and an exporter of vegetables, is that right?
2: Yeah, China's one of the biggest um, vegetable, fruit and vegetable exporters in the world. And so, yeah, I would expect dry conditions, especially for dry land horticulture, but including in greenhouses, are going to have a production supply side effect for China, and it's going to knock back its imports for horticulture um especially within the the asian region
15: with the higher prices that consumers are paying you know would it be in the realm of possibilities for the chinese government to step in and start directly subsidizing or further subsidizing those staple foods so people aren't feeling as much sticker shock
2: yeah china has a a whole range of mechanisms that it can use to control food price inflation and uh that includes you know on the production side Input subsidies, um, procurement prices from farmers and storage, so the strategic storage, especially of grains, but also a range of meats that it can release onto the market to manage prices. So it's got a whole range of mechanisms and I'm sure if there are big effects from this drought that it'll be using all those measures.
15: Given all of that happening inside of China, are there any implications for Australian agriculture, thinking back to the the export barriers on things like barley and wine?
2: There's going to be effects for Australian agriculture through prices, I think. I mean, prices are already buoyant and we're looking like we're going to have another excellent harvest. So the volume's up. The prices are high, there's been a bit of downward pressure recently, but this might stop that sort of downward pressure, events like this. So that's going to affect, you know, have a positive effect, effect, I guess, for Australian prices and farmers. About the other effect, the other commodities that China imposed barriers on, I can't see there being a direct effect. So the obvious one might be barley, for example, but um, China's barley is not grown in this central drought affected area that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And even then, China only produces 20% of its barley supply, the other 80% is imported. And so I think China will just keep importing its barley, especially from, from Canada and France, But I guess, you know, with Australia out of the picture and now Ukraine, which is another major barley exporter, then uh, China's starting to run out of options for consistent supply of barley. For example, if there's a big drought in Europe, that would affect their overall supply. So you'd think in the longer term, China would start to be taking these things into consideration about being too picky about the sources of its imports, especially you know in a in a period with more climate variability
1: Scott Waldron is an associate professor at the University of Queensland School of Agriculture and Food Sciences he was speaking there with Clint Jasper As farmers continue to struggle with worker shortages, many are looking to technology to reduce their reliance on labour. But a global shortage of semiconductor chips is making it challenging for those wanting to build the farm of the future. Lachlan Bennett
0: has the story. Semiconductor chips are the backbone of a vast array of electronic devices, from cars and computers to everyday electronics. They're also needed on the farm to produce ag-tech products, like remote monitoring devices for irrigators, water troughs or electric fences. But a global shortage means ag-tech manufacturers need to adapt.
4: The chip shortage has changed the way we design our products. About half our products are fully custom made. That's Tom Mills.
0: He runs an ag tech company called AgWan.
4: For the custom made components, what we need to do now is essentially look forward at uh, what chips are available, pre-purchase those chips and then design our equipment or refine our designs around that. But because we have uh, in-house Uh, software, control of our software in-house, and we control all our firmware, that allows us to iterate quite quickly.
0: It's not the best time for a chip shortage. Farmers are already struggling with worker shortages, and some had hoped that technology would allow them to cut down on labour and improve productivity.
4: The pressure's been around for a while to improve productivity on a per person basis. In Australia, we've fallen behind um, because we've not invested in this technology to date. Um, That's why a lot of the automation technology you find in dairies and so forth is is sourced from European countries because they've um, had to pay staff a lot more over there for some time. And because of it, it's forced them in that automation direction. So we're sort of playing a little bit of catch up here in Australia.
0: Technology is becoming an increasingly important part of many industries. But how did we get to a point where a core component of so many electronic devices became in short supply? It's hardly surprising that COVID is the culprit, but that's not the whole story. Lockdowns triggered a consumer electronics boom, as workers and students rushed to buy computers, cameras and other devices so they could work from home. But as demand was soaring, supply took a hit, thanks to a severe drought in Taiwan. Because chips require vast amounts of water to produce, and the world's largest manufacturer is based in Taiwan, things got a little tough. So much so that the United States government made a billion dollar decision. Legislation which has been several months in the making would set aside more than $50 billion in subsidies for chip makers in the US. While supply might be challenging, James Walsh from ag tech company FarmPulse says it hasn't dinted demand.
18: I think uh, the progressive farmers are always looking for that. They're always looking for the edge. And we're fortunate with agriculture being so uh, buoyant at the moment, people are looking for those efficiencies for when things might get a bit tighter. So they're willing to spend money on technology uh, as long as it gives them value. Um, I look at it as another tool that's in the shed and the thing is you you want to be um, using that all the time and saving you time, labour, the amount of input you put into the farm.
0: Farmers have already faced long waiting periods to get a new tractor, so waiting for tech, isn't out of the ordinary.
18: Anyone who's in uh, technology and trying to source uh, raw materials have had problems. Uh, most of our clients have been very understanding because they realise that uh, across everything we're trying to get at the moment, there's shortages. So uh, our biggest thing is to manage expectations. Uh, you know, we try to underpromise and overdeliver is our motto, and people appreciate that. If we can't get things, you know, we let them know. We try to look for alternatives.
0: As the disruption of COVID fades and manufacturers start to ramp up production, many hope that the chip shortage will start to ease. But in the meantime, early adopters of ag tech, like Longford farmer, Charlie McKinnon, are already reaping the rewards. He now has a network of remote monitoring devices on his farm, but he remembers how much running round
18: he had to do before he got them installed. Going to every single pivot um, Mm. every day, Driving to every pump site at least once a day to start it up. If there were any problems, back down to turn it off. Back up to the pivot to sort out the problem. Back down to the pump to start it up again. A lot of lot of driving around, and then also, uh, yeah, going to bed at night with the irrigators running. Uh, waking up in the morning to see if anything had gone wrong. Uh, yeah. So, and then to go from where we were to this, and with this tech, which it's made life a lot easier and saving us a lot of time and money as well.
1: Tasmanian farmer Charlie McKinnon, ending that story from Lachlan Bennett. And that's the show for today. I'm Kath McAloon. Country Breakfast was brought to you today with the assistance of Clint Jasper, Serena Locke and Matthew Crawford. Stick around for more great listening coming up here on ABC RN.